Uh, welcome to another segment of the Grassy and All on this July 12th. I can read well, 2006. And we have with us today Alan Watt, and uh, we have a bunch of questions I've seen already lining up for him, and, and that's fine. I'm just hoping that it's something different than what people asked him yesterday or <laughs> the last time he was on. And, Alan, uh, look, thanks very much for coming on. And let me ask you something. Have you got any kind of uh, obvious reaction uh, from posting that audio of uh, Kennedy's speech? Yeah, I've had different people uh, who've been affected by it. Um, uh, some people connected with governments. So, because what he said then is so so relevant to today. Um, yeah, and now that's still up there, is it not? Yeah. All right. So folks can go hit that if they want to. I will tell you, I exited nine minutes. I credited your website. Um, I, I built a show around that portion where he says, um, and I've got it right here. Um, <clears throat> I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's that one section. And the thing is, this was, it was nice at times transcribed uh, presidential speeches. And so when I heard it on, on your website, uh, I went over to the archives, and sure enough, there it was. And, uh, of course, he talks about, um, where is it? Uh, for we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy. Well, that says a mouthful, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that isn't uh, Joe Blow talking. That's supposed to be the guy who's in the know at the top. Mm -hmm. So he certainly understood what was happening. And, and if folks haven't heard this, um, please check it out right after the show whenever you can and just and listen to what's going on there. And I said this to you yesterday, you know, there was an urban legend on the, on the net and a pretty good job of, um, of faking it that uh, Kennedy had said something um, to this effect in November of 1963 in New York, I guess maybe a week or two before uh, he was assassinated. That did not happen. However, I'm wondering if, if other well-intentioned people were ever referring to this speech back in, uh, what was it, April of 1961. Yeah. Um, it could have been. Well, uh, and I know the gold boys, the ones that sell the gold and silver, always put something out that they're supposed to have said or done or something. Well, yeah, his involvement with the Federal Reserve, which some people say is a bit of a canard, yeah. that he wanted to print, I guess, um, silver back notes, get off the Federal Reserve notes. Yeah. And, of course, banking, yeah, usually when you mess with the bankers, you don't stick around too long, but I don't know how much that really is true. But I tell you, like Abraham Lincoln and all those uh, coincidences, um, Kennedy, like Lincoln, but I, I guess, you know, P.O., just about everybody there was, the very faction uh, that was around, and um, I don't think he ever had a chance. But after this, I mean, when you read this, what do you think he's describing? I mean, it, it can't be communism because he could, could have come right out and said it. No, because communism was only part of the one, there's only one head at the top, there's only one society at the top which uses uh, oppositions. It's got to have oppositions to get a, a synthesis. And then the synthesis becomes the, the new thesis and goes on from there. This, this is what communism was based upon. And communism is just a new name for a very old idea. Um, and, and the big boys have always used this technique of, of uh, extending society through stages of conflict towards the great work. You, you can't get a stagnant population, as they call it, uh, to move if there's only one side pushing them eventually. Um, the, the other side will, will literally wipe them. Get them sites to you. You don't let a site evolve naturally. They never get the funding. 
Well, we think, uh, we, we, well, Anthony C. Sutton, of course, uh, writes about Bolshe uh, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. Other authors have written about uh, Rockefellers and some of the other Western financiers' complicity in creating um, the Bolsheviks and also creating communism um, as, I guess, um, part of this whole uh, Hegelian dialectic that you had to have a boogeyman with capitalism being, I guess, the good guy. But, but actually, communism was just the most recent work or a system that's been going on for a long time, isn't it? It is. It, it is. In fact, really, uh, communism had a lot in common with the ancient systems of collectivism, um, where you have really a, a, a huge either priestcraft at the top, dishing out laws and ruling the lives of everybody beneath them. Um, you see that even 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, that's what was happening in there with the, the, the Pharisees who were just dishing out laws and didn't follow them themselves. And they lived much higher up than, than the people that served them in the public. Um, they were bound by laws. That was what all the factions were fighting about at that time. And the Pharisees were only one small sect at that time. Uh, so this is an ongoing thing of, of uh, uh, who makes the rules, who decides how you live and how society will be. That's what communism is. And, of course, the elite called it the great experiment. The U.S. was one of the great experiments. The, the communist system was another, and the historians wrote about it that way. And what they were doing was, was, was looking at the different techniques of controlling societies and eventually would blend the capitalism and communism together. And therefore you get Alvin Toffler's book, The Third Way, which is the coming together of that, a fascist elite at the top, a massive bureaucracy to run the people in a communist-type system for the people. Uh, so that's what we're seeing uh, today. That's what it's all about. Since it seems that communism has always been around because uh, you look at the feudal monarchies and such, and obviously they weren't into sharing the wealth. But how do you explain then capitalism? I mean, um, was that was that a rogue situation, something that wasn't planned, or was that allowed to happen, so to speak? Oh, it was allowed to happen. Uh, um, if you look at basically the old system of Catholicism, which was just, just the, the, the old Roman Empire, using religion and fear, fear of the unknown to rule peoples, as opposed to using just straight armies on them and terror. Um, they used terror of the mind. So they used old, old sciences, which had been well used in the ancient Middle East and elsewhere, of religion to control the public and, and terrify them. And of course, the, the, the priestcraft always had the ability to, to keep you safe or dispel the evil ones, etc. Uh, so they used that, and that was fine for an agricultural type situation in a feudal system. And really, uh, that's when Catholicism swept into a place like England big time, was under the Norman invasion. Uh, they brought with them uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And every king and queen that was appointed to rule over the countries always had their advisors who were priests uh, connected directly to the Vatican. And they all lived on the general public, so the public were the only ones that made the wealth. Uh, they brought in jewelry uh, to, to manage the money and collect the taxes because the person ends up hating the person who's collecting the taxes uh, rather than think, wait a minute, he's collecting them for the king. Right. So the king was still loved 
with the person that collected the taxes was hated. That was a, a very good strategy. And um, uh, but as I say, they all passed the money upwards to and took their cut on the way uh, right up to the Vatican. So when they had, to, they knew they had to eventually go into to, uh, an industrial era and use science so that to bring a new type of religion in with a different work ethic, and that's why they created the, the Protestant Revolution. And it would it would be correct to say that <clears throat> I guess in the last two centuries, maybe three. Um, that there have been kind of three laboratories across the world, and that would be capitalism in the West, um, so, uh, socialism in Europe, and then communism in Russia, and later China. Yes, uh, communism was the fastest way, or the Soviet system was the fastest way to take over dozens of countries in Europe and elsewhere and uh, centralize a government. That was so important, centralization of government. And then you put the same system of bureaucracy, schooling, uh, or education, um, uh, right down to the local level. And eventually, and, and Lenin said it too, he says, this system of the dictatorship will not last forever. Hmm. He said eventually the, the, it, it will form into a new type of system, not quite communist and not quite capitalist. And so he knew the agenda a hundred years before the, it all came down. So... If what we're seeing, uh, perhaps, <clears throat> is a perceivable melding of all the systems. Yeah, if you, if you look at the system of Britain and, and the British Empire and free trade, which was born w with John Dee in the 1500s, mm -hmm. um, that was part of it. They wanted to go into countries, countries, the same system in that country, after they'd taken it over by force if need be. And set up the same type of, of uh, uh, British government type thing in bureaucracy. And only when they were sure after one or two generations that it was running the same way uh, would they then withdraw, knowing it would stay that way. Uh, and that's what the, that was also the official policy after World War II, um, when Britain was to start to give up uh, part of its commonwealth. Uh, it was the same, it was still written into law under the Atlantic Charter, mm -hmm. which became the United Nations Charter. Uh, that was signed in 41 and 42. Um, they said they, would, they, would, they wouldn't withdraw until they set up an exact duplicate of the British structure. Uh, Joan Dion would argue, and I think she makes a good case of the fact that <clears throat> Uh, when Britain supposedly decolonized, they still kept their empire uh, because she contends that they decolonized countries in exchange for their votes. So well, they would. Yeah, that's right. But, but also, what they, what they did, uh, you see, once you're into the bureaucratic class and you have one or two generations or hereditary generations in the bureaucracies, uh, then you know it's going to pretty well stay that way because they're benefiting so well at the top. And, and then you also introduce the same orders, which are Masonic-type orders, going back to, to Britain. Uh, so you, you can always get the feedback on what's really happening, and, and you keep control that way. Um, now that we're seeing what we're seeing, and it certainly seems to be happening quickly, um, are, have you kept up with this whole bit about the NASCO corridor and everything? Oh, yeah, but I knew about that 20 years ago. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, what's ridiculous, and we were talking about this yesterday, and that is, on one hand, we're listening to our president tell us about how he's going to secure the borders and build walls and put a guard, national guard on the borders. Uh -huh. And then in the meantime, they're talking about this gigantic <laughs> you know, 
highway with no no questions asked into uh, the United States. So, I mean, yeah. it's ridiculous. Uh, it's the old bit about watch this hand while the other hand does something. But what, where I was going... The public, you see, there are right. and you appease them by giving them stories. But the fact is, when they signed the free trade agreements uh, uh, mm-hmm. back in the 80s, before the NAFTA agreement, that was all discussed then, that eventually, mm-hmm. uh, it's written right in there, the free flow of goods and labor must not be impeded. Uh, it, and that was the same technique that was used for the European Union. Well, even the term free trade is kind of an oxymoron, in this, or at least it's a contradiction in terms for us, because for the workers, it's not going to be free at all, is it? No, no, not even for any of the small businesses. It's selective trade. It's the big internationalists, as Carl quickly said, the new feudal system mm-hmm. will be a, a the new overlords of the feudal system will be uh, the international CEOs, and and that's what it's about. It's a protective trade for the big boys, mm-hmm. um, because they they see anybody trading as being chaos. You see. Well, then then what we're looking at now, there is a quickening of events. Uh, are, are we headed to some kind of um, apocalyptic occurrence? There's no doubt about it. I mean, Jack Satali wrote about it in his book, Millennium, in 1990. And it's subtitled Winners and and Losers in the the Coming New World Order. And uh, he he put the format down for for America. Uh, And he he helped spearhead the European Union before he went to the UN. And he said America will go through the same phases. He said there'll be a bit worse, there'll be more, there'll be more chaos as uh, the hordes come in. He called them hordes come in from, from South America. And he says for, for maybe a generation or two, there'll be some chaos. Uh, now, some chaos to that, these big boys means there could be murders, riots, and, and fighting going on. But eventually it settles down, and you can't make an omelet without cracking eggs. So. Right. Um, the misery doesn't matter to these boys. It uh, must be, they call it historical necessity. Right. And so, um, it said eventually most of the South America, uh, the Southern U.S. will be, be uh, uh, Latin speaking. In fact, a good half of America would end up being uh, Spanish speaking. Well, do you see a third world war happening? Uh, the Third World War is on right now. It's every, it's, this war in the Middle East is to affect the entire planet. And it is, because every little country on the planet has signed into the anti-terrorism bill. And they're, they're, they're pushing the same laws, the same ID uh, card push, uh, and eventually the chipping of the people. Out of this is going to come out the cashless society and the totally monitored world. That's what it's about. Well, uh, since uh, war is good business, and I'm assuming, too, that this might be the last time it would be used, um, and if Brzezinski is telling us a secret in that grand chessboard, uh, could we see the uh, the U.S. military decimated abroad? It's possible, but I don't think so, because the CFR and, and the Royal Institute of International Affairs discussed this back in the 1930s at some of their meetings. I have their old books. And they said the U.S. would be the policeman of the world and, and uh, take over from Britain. It already had, really, at that time. But they knew it would take more of a role on. And they said that, that, that America would go through a couple of minor wars as they extended this work. And it was for globalization. And in their books, they did say this was for world um, government. Uh, they, they, they never, ever mentioned words to their meetings. Because... And, and they said eventually America would, would start to falter. 
come back again and then falter again financially as they extended themselves financially and then they would simply meld into the world and then China would take over. Well, you know, it seems they use that same formula also. Uh, if we look back, and we said this before, um, about how Napoleon was used and then kicked to the curb. And you take a look when they're scourgers around, they do a job, and then after their job is done, they, they get kind of betrayed on too, betrayed also. I think that's even what happened to Hitler. You know? Right. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. Because uh, Hitler, um, Hitler was time life man of the year twice in the 1930s. Yeah, and that was also called the Great Experiment, and, and British nobility were going over there and and to see how this great socialist system. Once again, you see how do you control the public? How do you, you get a system where the public are enthusiastic to serve the the one system? And uh, they were very excited about it, and I, and I think they had agreements uh, because Hitler wanted had wanted a united Europe. We now know from Winston Churchill's personal secretary, who put out his memoirs called The Fringes of Power, uh, with declassified stuff 50 years after the event. Um, he put it out and said that Churchill also talked to his own peer group uh, enthusiastically about He said, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. This war will create a united Europe. So both Hitler and Churchill wanted the same thing. Well, what do you think Hitler uh, accomplished? Um, well, what he accomplished was um, uh, the the war itself. They almost brought the UN uh, out of it um, as a world government. Uh, and at the time, lots of books were written by the big boys uh, who really were sure they were going to have a total world government then. And then when people still didn't want it, the general public, they started to quiet it down a bit and do it more, more covertly. Do you believe or have evidence of the fact um, that Hitler very well knew what was going to happen and that he actually didn't die in that bunker? I mean, he had served his purpose and he was spirited away? Well, what I do know is that Hess went over. Uh, he, he took a plane, remember, to Britain right. during mm -hmm. the war. And I don't know if people know that he landed. He knew where he was going. Mm -hmm. He landed on Lord Lothian's land. And Lord Lothian was the the head of the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the CFR. Well, but, but could it have been that Hess actually... Well, I guess what I'm saying, Hess didn't understand the fix was in, and do you think he was trying to go over to talk sense? And then I think he went over to say, well, hey, what's the game here? We're supposed to have a stalemate to France. Uh, after Dunkirk, there was supposed to be a stalemate there. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. And then there would come to negotiations and all this kind of thing. Um, I think that was the deal. And uh, it's interesting, too, Hess, uh, through the family history, was raised to the House of Hess, which was also part of the British uh, monarchy. Well, they're cousins anyway, aren't they? From the well, but do you think that Hess didn't get it and actually... I think so. I think even over, or was sent over to find out why okay. Britain was continuing this, this offensive when they were supposed to come, but it, when they, they had a secret agreement. And so, do you think they sat on him for all those years in Spandau? We'll never know. We'll never, no. ever know, except what they've told us. Right. But, uh, that's right. I, I think, Captain, as far as the bunker goes, I've never known in, in any time in history where the elite made a castle, a bunker, or anything without many, many escape tunnels. It's never been done before. Well, if in fact he knew the handshake and he understood the uh, the script, 
Uh, then he, if he was a, a useful and willing tool, I'm, I'm often thinking that, but for some strange reason, unless they get whacked and, and betrayed, they get paid off for their service and they disappear. That's often what happens. I even think the same happened with Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me stop right now. We're, uh, I'm going to tell everybody, uh, you're listening to Grassy and All. We do have with us Alan Watt. Uh, what, I'll, what I'll do is uh, if you folks want to ask him a question, make a comment, you can do so by sending an email to visigoth at hotmail.com. And you can also get in touch with us um, through Yahoo. That would be viz, B-Y-Z, 1400. Or you can use MSN, and that is Visigoth. And uh, going back to, to the, uh, the, I guess, the theme of the show, Alan, uh, and that was because of what you posted there, that audio by Kennedy, also trying to figure out whom he was speaking about. You say the secret societies. Now, um, uh, you know, I mean, you, you go where you want to go with this. I mean, are we talking something beyond Freemasonry? Yeah, Freemasonry uh, at a lower degrees is definitely um, part of the structure mm -hmm. because they're sworn really just to, to be their own masters rather than uh, any public office. Um, and, and you'll find that, that just like MI5 and MI6, everyone in it's a Freemason. It's pretty well mandatory, and Peter Wright talked about that. He belonged to MI5. Uh, he wrote about that in Spycatchers. So, well, you find the CIA were, were just the same, and uh, at a higher level, in fact, than standard Freemasonry. And he knew that the CIA had its own agenda. At least they were serving another master, and um, I think that was part of it as well. Um, also, I've been remiss in, in uh, bringing up your website. Uh, it's CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, and Alan, it's getting bigger and better all the time. Can you tell people what they'll find there and any um, any uh, materials that you do have for sale? Yeah, they, they can go through and get lots of uh, free programming, different shows I've done, and they can also see the, the books to sell. And I've got a DVD coming out hopefully next week. Um, that will be for sale as well, and the price will, will be up there. Uh, about secret societies and it's done through the ages so and how it works basically how the system works and then here's an example for this you see at the very top they look upon society as one whole thing they don't see separate middle classes or lower classes mm -hmm. and it's one big conglomerate of, of them or as Plato called them the it's and uh, they have societies and, and uh, at different levels to manage the it's and um, it, it, it's fascinating to see that in all ages there's, there's the exoteric religions to keep the people in check to make them obedient and then there's the esoteric managers that uh, can actually push the agenda from the bottom if need be uh, up and it appears to have evolved from the public when in fact it was managed from the top. That's how, how this whole system works. And some of the, even the, the old Catholic um, uh, big ones, um, the big writers in the Middle Ages, talked about this. They said that uh, once the masses, or the mass has been served for the masses, that's why it's called the mass, um, they said we have our own uh, particular rights after after the doors are bolted and the public have left. And, and I've heard, well, Alan was on before, and, and I think he spoke to the fact that um, there are a number of, I guess, circles around that protect, uh, I guess, the hierarchy. 
Um, do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. They, they, they run the overworld, which is their legal system. They run the underworld, which is what we would call the illegal system. They need the two of them. So you have the mafia at the bottom and different other groups in different countries. And you have the, the legal system on top. And, and that was shown very well in the movie Gangs of New York, uh, how the gang leader got together with a local politician. Mm-hmm. And once in a while, the politician would say, look, the public are getting anxious, there's too much crime. And uh, who can you get, who can you offer up for public execution to quell the, the public's fears? And uh, he'd, he'd offer them two or three of the lesser gang members. This is how the system has always been run. Uh, it's quite fascinating to see that. Well, you just, I don't know if you can speak directly to this, but you just made me think of, was that perhaps the, um, the rationale behind uh, uh, John Gotti getting uh, thrown in jail? It's very possible. And it's interesting, too, he didn't have much time left either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Often when they've served their, their, their function or they're, they're getting older or a bit more careless, they'll just offer them up. And, and the public see this happening think, well, the legal system is really working. And, and that's the intent of it. Do you think, I mean, we, we think of the mafia now as being passe and such, uh, that we evolved, I guess, from that. But, um, you know, is the mafia in the true sense uh, globally involved still? It's still oh, yeah, it's globally involved. And um, uh, it's interesting <laughs> For instance, in Canada, we started casinos up back in about the late 80s. Uh, the government started them up. I mean, here's your, your government pushing gambling, mm-hmm. which used to be uh, a low-life stuff. And, and casinos sprung up everywhere. And Bob Ray, that was the premier, which is like the, the governor of Ontario, uh, Bob Ray that was in at the time, and he brought up, and this was in the newspapers, he brought up mafia bosses from Chicago to advise them on how they set up the casinos to make sure that, that, uh, uh, that they wouldn't get ripped off. <laughs> uh, uh, I, uh, in the newspapers. <laughs> and the public didn't even no, didn't, right. pick up, you know. <laughs> I, did, I know, and, and a lot of stuff that's getting done today, uh, in fact, Wing TV was on yesterday and they said the same thing. You know, he, I guess Victor said you could almost, he would almost expect they could come out and say, guess what? We did 9-11, and people go like, okay. Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, I've got a question for you along these lines, uh, and it, it asks, how did the ancient mysteries and ruling elites spread from the Near East and Egypt to Europe and Asia over the millennia? And is there a direct lineage from ancient controllers to today's controllers? There's no doubt, yeah. Okay. Yeah, whenever you look, I don't think you can find it anywhere on the Internet, but if you can look at... Uh, or, or see the, the inaugurations of, of the Queen Elizabeth the first, the second. She's actually the, the, the first of Scotland, second for England. Uh, but uh, you watch uh, Westminster Abbey where she was inaugurated, and and you look at the, the floor there, you'll see the the, the, the chessboard floor of the, of the Masonic Lodge. That's what the, the floor of the cathedral uh, is. Okay. And you, she's sitting on a raised dais. It's maybe if it's five uh, high or seven high. And she's got the airman cloak around her with the, the black spots on the white and, uh, and the red, of course, they're purple. And then round about her, she's got all these guys with their different symbols, etc. Now you'll see the same thing on, on the old Stellas uh, in the Middle East of Nimrod with, with the airman, too, uh, mm. around his neck. Uh, and the same people standing 
and he's sitting on a raised dais. Why is, is this ceremony uh, from thousands and thousands of years ago still being performed today in Britain? We, we know, uh, well, we, I guess we're more familiar with the spreading of uh, Mystery Babylon religions, Egypt, some god worship, but whatever, into Europe and, and, uh, and elsewhere. But one place uh, that always seems a little inscrutable, and excuse the pun, but I mean, um, did it have its impact in Asia? Somehow it always seems that Asia um, was different. Uh, was it, in fact? Now, what they did, they, they set up triads. And so for the West, they gave us uh, uh, the foundation um, of Judaism, and from there you get Christianity, and then you have uh, Islam or Mohammedism. Mm -hmm. So you have the Trinity there, and for, for, the, for the rest of the, the Far East, and, and they have different mentalities there, they structured different systems, and they gave them uh, basically um, Hinduism, and then from that they gave them Buddhism. And then up for the for the Far East to get them Shintoism, so they get triads. And and uh, that second half of the question, just to remind you, it says, uh, is there a direct lineage from ancient controllers to today's controllers? And you would say certainly there is. I have no doubt. You can't see the same ceremonies that put on for thousands of years uh, down through the ages with the same um, people being in the exact same positions, holding the same emblems at these big inaugurations. Um, why did they have to be so exact? Why did they have to follow something that was done, ceremonies were done without? And, and where on earth did they have this stuff written down? Just out of curiosity, did you see the last uh, installation of a pope, uh, Joey Ratzinger? I didn't know. Uh, I, I, there was a priceless moment, apparently. Uh, my uh, partner, Harry, uh, had been listening on CBS radio while he was getting ready in the morning. And he came in and told me, he says, you're not going to believe what I heard, what a CBS broadcaster said, doing a kind of like the play-by-play, -play, Alan, of what was going on. And he described one of the coffins that are out there. Oh, it was the funeral. I'm sorry. It was the funeral of um, John Polo, you know, Carl Waitolo, whatever, uh, where there were three coffins, and one of them had the skull and bones on, and the guy was talking about it. Oh, yeah. And then also saying how there was an obelisk in proximity to, uh, to the coffin. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all because if you look at the, the, the architecture, even in the Vatican, uh, you have to see what's called the universal religion. Catholicism means universal because at the time that they created it, they, they brought into its architecture and its system all of the known existing religions. Um, I, I'll send us along to you, so be looking forward if you don't mind. I've been a listener up in uh, Canada. Uh, hola. Hola. Um, sent me a PowerPoint, which is meant to be like a PR piece of the Vatican. And, and she wrote, she goes, no comment, you know, which I knew what she was saying. And when I looked at it, I know what it was supposed to be. When you look at all the symbolism, it's like, holy mackerel, how in your face is that? Yes. Um, going along with this bit about um, uh, ancient mysteries and such, this is something I've been interested in. Somebody asked, well, um, what is it okay, was the fall of Was the fall of Rome and the sacking by the Goths planned? Were the Dark Ages planned? I would say so, because you, you, you'll find that uh, Rome did have parties of the elite inside the middle of Rome as they were being attacked. Uh, now, these guys were no dummies. They did they, run other countries uh, for a long, long time. This empire, it was an empire like the British Empire. And uh, there were no fools. And they certainly did pay off most. See, most of them weren't really ransacked as such. They paid off these 
these six swarms that came up to their to their gates. They paid them off until there was no more to pay off. And there was also um, some kind of deal worked out with, with some of the uh, the heads of these big these clans, you might say. Um, there's so much to all of these, these. There's even Mr. Religion involved in the leaders of these clans associated with Rome, because some of the leaders after they they, they died um, were buried. They, they dug. What they did was they diverted rivers and put them underneath where the river was, and with their gold, all the loot, and then put the, the river back on top of them again to protect them. And the only other place you'll see that happening is in the histories of the Khazars. I thought that strange then. Well, you know, it, it, I, obviously it's hard for a lot of us to process the fact that the, the game has always been rigged. And when I think back to those early, well, the tribes in Europe in the early part of um, you know, A.D., um, you kind of think that they perhaps preceded something, but actually the power structure has always been here, hasn't it? It's never. The power has never. It's, it's, we forget how uh, these, these monarchs weren't blundering their way through time. Um, they were always surrounded by a coterie of the most cunning men you could find in the land who were schooled, like Machiavelli, in, in uh, uh, the human nature, the nature of, of man. Uh, and they were terribly cunning. And you find the same thing with Francis Bacon with his essays mm -hmm. he wrote for, for the king to try to get into the king's good graces as an advisor. And he was trying to show how cunning he was in his knowledge of, of human understanding. Well, since we talk about the same formula and uh, with this individual asking the question about the gods and such and the sacking of Rome, I mean, can we look at that, um, that, that paradigm and apply it to... Uh, the powers that be back then telling um, uh, Genghis, um, you know, going to Europe and waxing people, and, and there'd be some kind of benefit or outcome? I mean, do you think that that was something that was orchestrated for a particular reason? Oh, I'm sure, too. And, and can is just the same as Cain, uh, King. It's all from the same root word as well. Yeah. Oh, I can't. Okay. He was red-haired and blue-eyed, too. Yeah. yeah, you know, that's another whole show. Uh, but... There is that talk about that particular um, complected and featured type race out there, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, um, and the same at Sumer. Sumer, though, they've dug up uh, some of the early kings and queens, and they've even found their black wigs, just like the Egyptians, too. The, the elite of the Egyptians, they wore black wigs made from the hair of the local people, but they were generally red-haired and blue-eyed, the, the, the elite. Yeah. All right, so we can even look at wigs as being a trapping of the elite almost always, mm -hmm. whether it powdered white wigs. That's right. So that, so now I'm thinking then, when I think of the Founding Fathers, I mean, is that a sign that the joke was on us too? I, I have no doubt about that. <laughs> because they, they had meetings in, in the seven, early 1700s in Europe, the elite, and they knew they couldn't keep on this game of, okay, uh, cousin in England will attack cousin in France or cousin in Germany forever and tax the public and, and etc. Uh, for these wars, they couldn't keep up this game forever, and they knew they had to go into a new era, uh, a different time, uh, a different structure, and they needed a, a knight in shining armor that hadn't been used before, so they created one, and, and that's, what, that's what the whole U.S. was all about. Uh, here's a question. Um, well, this is this is a good th a topic, I guess. Uh, if there's ever, uh, shall we say, trouble in paradise, the question is. 
if these, quote, puppet masters are in, all in league together, why was the Vatican against the Templars like in 1307? I, I think it was probably like most things. It was the best PR they ever got, in a sense, because it didn't get all the Templars. And they don't mind uh, uh, the Talmudic saying is true as well. The few must die for the sake of the many. as a sacrifice. We know that the Templars' uh, treasures were never found. They got, that, they got that out. They had a fleet of ships that set off beforehand, and we do, were told we don't know where they went to. Well, uh, so and, and out of them came all the uh, what later be called Freemasonry. Well, again, looking back now, uh, the Vatican kind of gave their imprimatur, if you will, to the Templars. But could it have been that the Templars got so successful and prosperous that the Vatican was a little unhappy with that? I don't really think so. Uh, uh, power at that level tends to share, uh, rather than have, have strife between themselves, they share the loot. And, uh, and and they cooperate together. That's how they get their best benefit is through cooperation. Then, then who cut loose um, those who uh, wanted to persecute the uh, Templars? Uh, well, it's Philip of France, of course, who was given the job of being the bad guy and, and starting it all off. And, and once again, too, once once they had brought out a few facts about the Templars, uh, the Vatican, that's supposed to be the legal above system. Uh, all shiny and nice and, and, and all this kind of thing, they had to act. They, they couldn't uh, stand by and pretend they, they didn't believe it. And so they had to give, again, a sacrifice to the public. Huh. Uh, so you say when you get to a certain level that that's pa that powerful, that high up, it's more or less self-preservation that they make sure they play nice with one another. Oh, absolutely. That's why they have no worries about China. We made China what it is. Mm -hmm. The West made China mm -hmm. what it is. Communist China, we made it. We gave them all the industries through the GATT treaties and different treaties. Oh, sure. And we need Captain Kai-shek after he helped us with the Japanese. Yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah. And also, uh, from another source, like, um, are you familiar with Smedley Butler? Yeah. Oh, when he says more or less in a cathartic piece, not inside the war was a racket, but just in another essay, and he says, "Yeah, I went into I went into China to make it safe for Standard Oil." Yeah, yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, and uh, you know, this was decided years ago that China, that in the 1930s, the Royal Institute and CFR, they knew that they were going to set up China to take over from the U.S. about this, this time period. They knew that they talked about it. Uh, you know, the robber barons in the United States are the ones that I kind of look at as far as, you know, running the show and being an extension of what grew out of Europe and such. Um, there, is a, there is a connection, isn't there, to, um, shall we say, the propping up of the robber barons like Rockefeller and Morgan and Baron Adult? Yes. Uh, and they did have a relationship, did they not, with uh, the Rothschilds? Oh, yes. Yes, they're all connected. It's all one high mm -hmm. system. And, and the trick is, too, it's misleading when people think that, uh, um, for instance, if you're Catholic and you think that Kennedy uh, was a good Catholic, you'd be mistaken. Kennedy, uh, like the people at the top of all peoples, might go through the motions of something, but they have their own inner religion of the elite. Um, and it's the same in Judaism. Um, so, so the Rothschilds, uh, yeah, they're, they're held up as heroes by many Jews um, who do what they're told if, if it comes down from Rothschild. They follow, 
but he follows his own inner religion. It's all one religion at the top for the elite. Um, I'll get back to these questions, but now, uh, again, you just reminded me of something, and since we opened up the show um, around uh, that Kennedy speech in 61, um, can you shed any light on this? Give us your opinion on what you may know to be fact. Well, we think back about, okay, um, Jack being assassinated. You don't get assassinated unless you uh, run afoul or maybe go back on a promise or change your mind or something like that and have a change of heart. Uh, with relation to his father, I had just gotten the movie uh, Winter Kills. I know it's a fiction movie, but as we all know about fiction in Hollywood, there it depicted a very much Joe-like Kennedy giving up his son. On the other hand, some say, well, Joe had a stroke. He may not have been all that uh, controlling. And, and having that happen, uh, Robert and John might have thought they could have pulled something off, like for real. Yeah. Um, i got to go back and find out how incapacitated Joe was after that um, stroke, because he did die in 69, well after both sons died. Um, what do you think? Uh, well, what I, what I know is, is that, I mean, Joe himself used to spend quite a time during World War II with his wife in Buckingham Palace with the Queen, you know. Um, and that was the big society they belonged to, a very high Freemasonic society, like all the elite do. And, and it doesn't matter if you're Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish, you get into it. It's interesting that Bronfman, old Sam Bronfman, mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, was, whose family was set up 50, 60 years before Prohibition, they were set over to do what they were going to do in the future. Um, even though he'd made billions, really, literally, a buck during that whole era, um, and he had everything a man could possibly want uh, for riches. Um, his, his wish right to his dying day was to be knighted by the Queen. And you've got to ask yourself, why was it so important to be knighted by the Queen? And it's because at the top of the mystery religions and world empire, that's where, where it was ruled from. That was a symbol uh, of your total acceptance. And wasn't, and wasn't Joe also uh, ambassador to the court of King James? Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, do you think Joe gave his son up, or do you think um, they the, the boys went off running on their own after I think the they went on their own? Yeah. Have you ever read those gemstone files? Uh, no. Well, that, that suggests that in there. Supposedly, they have a great deal of validity, but that's their take on the situation. That uh, with Joe's stroke, uh, they went off and uh, freelanced, and uh, you saw the results. We all saw the results. Uh, yes. uh, and, and here's an interesting thing. See. When you realize, uh, a good example is George Orwell's 1984, where he shows you a system of total control of the world, really, uh, with fake wars being planned and vice keeping changing all the time, eternal war, perpetual war. Mm -hmm. uh, and the ones who are being spied on are not the general population. The masses, they, they, don't, they don't matter. They're entertained and kept happy. Right. Uh, it was the, the bureaucracies that, that keep the sham going, that are spied upon. In other words, the workers to keep the system going. And they're, they're monitored, they have, they're, they're, they're bugged. There's just hidden cameras watching them. But when you open up the books of the Soviet system, you'll find the same thing there. There's massive dossiers on every bureaucrat and civil service right down to the bottom. They had to have all the information on these people to make sure that they were still following their, their, their conditioned path and weren't letting things out the bag. And you'll find that the same system in America and in Britain is worldwide. That's how it's always been. 
It's the, it's the ones, your helpers that you spy upon. Well, there was a program on television uh, a few years ago about, about Kennedy and his affair with Marilyn Monroe. And uh, in this little documentary, they mentioned some lodge they used to go to, some, uh, it was like a, a hunting lodge or something, or uh, a log cabin somewhere. Uh. And it was just true Frank Sinatra, I think they, they got it. But what was mentioned in that documentary was that the CIA used to buck the pillows in that room that Kennedy was in. So here you have the CIA doing the same stuff they did in the Soviet Union of bugging the ones that are actually um, the workers, you might say, for the system. Right. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, getting back um, <clears throat> to the questions, um, is, uh, what is your take on the Da Vinci Code? Uh, how do you uh, view that? That's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good seller. Yeah. Well, do you think, is, is this one of those things where... Um, you kind of get a job done in the sense of any they, he brings out stuff that we know to be true. A lot of us who quote get it, um, but if it gets too close to the masses, wondering if something's going on, here you take it out and you wrap it around a story, and then you kind of take it down the side street, and everybody goes up. Uh, it's it's all it's all hooey. Is, is there any distance gotten out of him writing that book, uh, taking the heat out more or less? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's a lot of spin. Um, not not historically historically correct either, but they, they do a lot of spinning, and, and that's what it, that's how the public buy it. It's fascination; they get fascinated by it. Um, the, the word fascination is the fascination, by the way. You know, that's not a coincidence, is it? <laughs> yeah, so that's how you get it through to the public, and uh, they don't care about the details or the truth. And of course, it was Beijing and Lincoln and Lee that set up the foundations for this. And they were sent out there to do the same thing with Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Well, so first you, you lay the foundation of possibility. Right. The people swallow it up, forget about it, but it's there in the subconscious. Then you bring someone out later to build on the fantasy, and, and they'll swallow it even more. Well, you know, before I ever got it, um, I used to watch The X-Files. And, and then after I got it, I looked back and I said to myself, you know, they actually were telling a lot of truth in there, but then they were putting a spin on it, you know, making it a little uh, ridiculous or more. And then people, if they ever get to thinking or questioning, those who are watching it will say, oh, that's just like X-Files. Mm-hmm. And oh, I guess the same thing when I'm saying that Dan Brown might have done for secret societies, mm-hmm. X-Files might have done for covert government operations in a sense. Oh, definitely. And, of course, it's very interesting, isn't it, that um, it's on Murdoch's uh, station, and that's part of what he calls what? The New World Communication Group or something. <laughs> and, and also that's what Tavistock calls predictive programming, because you put the possibility into people's minds through fiction primarily, again, through the, the fascination, and uh, and people swallow it without question. And and then you can bring in those those actual things into their, their lives, the real spying on them, real things that happen, and they accept it, because well, subconsciously they've already swallowed it. Well, then it would be true, then, that when people get hit with science fiction, they're being prepared for something that they're going to find maybe 50 years? The, the first the first sponsored um, authors uh, that we can find uh, was done through a, a set-up by the Rothschild Foundation, uh, Foundation in Britain. Uh, in the 1800s, the, he sponsored uh, writers to write along the lines of science fiction to, to create... Um, 
this, this predictive programming uh, to fascinate youngsters so that when they start to go into the areas of science or eventually space exploration, um, they wouldn't think it an abnormal way to go. It seems normal to us because we've been those with science fiction. We don't even ask why we're spending billions of dollars on NASA. Uh, that was done deliberately. Yeah, yeah I, in fact, it still is. I mean, they still pay authors to mm-hmm. do this stuff. Yeah, I, I, there's no doubt. I mean, now we, we just feel that there's no such thing as science fiction. <laughs> That's correct. And, and all you're doing is, is getting predictive programming of possibilities. And through fiction, you don't censor things. You don't say, well, I believe that, I don't believe that. You, you sit back and allow it all to come into your brain. You're downloaded in a sense. You're enjoying it. Um, and then when these things happen in your life and they actually bring certain projects forward, it's not so foreign. And, and it's almost as though you've, you've already debated it, but you haven't. Mm-hmm. You just accept it. Yeah, I, I look at 24 right now as getting people prepared for the acceptance of, um, of torture in particular. Yeah. That's a very dangerous show, I think. And, and also, what does it do? It pops up on Fox Network, which is Murdoch's. Uh, yeah, and Fox is 666 from the Kabbalah. <laughs> it never ends, does it, Alan? No, you're worried. <laughs> what we're saying here is scratching the surface, because if you go into the whole language structure, you realize that, that even your language is a computer language, and you are the computer. Have you ever done an etymological study at all? Uh, is that... Is that a work that you might want to take on if you haven't, I, I'm, that I'm not aware I have, of? Uh, and, I, and I teach it sometimes to, to small, uh, very small groups. Um, is that is that embraced in any one of the uh, the, the cutting through books? Uh, a little bit, not 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 deeply, although it's deeper than, than most, you would say. Mm-hmm. But sure, because when you realize that a, a, a program, they knew this hundreds of years ago. Um, when Francis Bacon wrote himself, he says, we are creating the new international language of the future to be called English. And when you realize that prior to him, the language that was spoken in England prior to the 1500s was really old Saxon German. So they did. They were Mm. creating a language, and they had teams working on it. And uh, Shakespeare helped bring out most of the, the words in the English language. That was his function. And um, if you are a, a, a computer, the programmer uh, will understand by using the logic that you use, your human logic, mm-hmm. uh, and your, your program, your language, he should know the answer to any question before he programs you. Because you must follow with the logic right. in your language to that conclusion. And that's how simply mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, works. that does make sense. Yes. I um, <clears throat> don't know if you can comment on this, but a listener has asked, could Alan uh, comment on Laura Knight Jancic's cosmology, um, specifically regarding channeling and the existence of extra-dimensional entities? Uh, why bother? <laughs> uh, you want to explain that for him? <laughs> well, why bother? I mean, uh, you, why, are they, why are they rushing off into uh, um, the alien stuff uh, when you've got so much here you don't need to understand yourself? You, know, you don't have to rush off into the alien stuff. This was pushed as a diversion by the big boys. It's been very, very successful. Uh, this, the whole UFO thing, do you think that's cooked? Uh, no, because we've been making the, the, the flying saucers here for many years. I mean, the BBC did a documentary on Area 51 in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And you see them coming out of the ground in an Air Force base. <laughs> so, come on, you know. Well, you didn't... Uh, even Canada, mm-hmm. 
um, I think, prior to even uh, Area 51 uh-huh. had created a hovercraft. Yeah, it wasn't just a hovercraft, and, and there's even four, they even showed a, a section on television not so long ago. It crashed down near a place called Allison, just north of there, and the fur was still in the field where it, where it landed. But every country has them, Britain's has them. I've, I've seen them off the, off, uh, the RAF base um, in Lossiemouth in Scotland. I've, I've seen the flying saucers there too. Yeah. Well, what was interesting, that the way I got a look at it was in a, a, a documentary drama, about um, do you remember when the um, the aeronautic engineers in Canada had created what was it the Arrow? Oh yes, Abra Arrow. Yeah. Yeah, and how great that was, and then we were told to kibosh it by the United States. Yeah. Well, in, anyway, in what seems to be a harmless film clip of the period, in this parade, here comes this hovercraft. <laughs> bubble there and all and even that was a diversion because there's three levels of yeah. science and uh, it takes a lot of uh, working towards the great work to be accepted into the second level um, I mean Nick Bigot showed us those little devices the CIA were using in the 1950s the size of a, a TV remote that you put in your pocket that could influence your thoughts and actually put thoughts into your head in line of sight now that had to be solid state and that was in the early 50s. Exactly. Before the transistor wow. and all that. So, come on, there's a second level there for the CIA and the other boys, and there's another level above that. Uh, let me get in this. Uh, what looks kind of like a two-part question. Uh, it says, um, uh, it's, a little, it's a little rough here, but it says, um, when these military slash police, whatever, state, local, um, help their rulers, um, to do their bidding to get people chipped. Um, and I assume what he's saying is after those who have gone quietly, uh, for, for whatever purposes, you know, whether it's health or such, um, will, will they finally turn on, on those of us and say, listen, you're getting this or, or you're not playing? Oh, oh, yes. Everybody's to get chipped, yeah. Um, yeah. So, in other words... The military and police will do what they're told because I don't think it's a, 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 an incident in history where, where police or military have never done what they were told. Um well, that was the second part, uh, but let me just clarify then. They, they are trying, and they will continue to try, to get people voluntarily to get shipped for all sorts of reasons. Yes. Right? Now, there'll be a, whole, there'll be a bunch of us who will hold out, but that can't, that can't be allowed to stand, can it? It can't be, and what they'll also do is make it impossible to even live in their system without it, because it is to go into the cashless system. This came out in Britain. In the 1990s, they tried to bring out the ID card then, you know, in Britain. It's the same one that they're bringing out here. The same make, same company, same everything. And it, But they also said this would be your bank card as well, eventually. You know, and I... So, so you'll be unable to, to buy, sell, all that stuff. They're following revelations because that's the blueprint. Yeah. Uh, uh... All right, so uh, as he says, I don't understand how these people can do their bidding when something inside should be telling them how wrong it is. Mm-hmm. But, but police, police and military have always done this, and they've done experiments. Uh, you know, the, the famous experiments in laboratories where people will, uh, or students are brought in and they're told that they're actually shocking their fellows when they press this button, different pain levels. Right. And it's actors that come in and, and nothing really happens to them. And they go up to the stage where they're jumping in the seat and screaming for help. 
And they still, as long as there's someone there to give the official command and take responsibility, the average Joe will do what he's told. This is understood, and that's how police operate and the military. Well, this is the last question I'll get in. This is pretty heavyweight, um, and I'll just let you address it. Uh, how does Alan view the power of the mind? I ask since Alan, while well-intentioned, has a very dour view of the world we live in. I believe that the mind can and does help to shape our own personal realities. Does Alan agree? And if so, how does he see his talks affecting the listeners? Does he fear that by the sheer weight of his information that he may be furthering this elite agenda by informing people who aren't prepared for what he has to say? Uh, not really. The ones who are not prepared anyway will, will go the way that the people always go in these times. Um, uh, this has been going on for thousands of years. So I always say don't panic that you, you wake up now and find what's really going on. Uh, it takes a long time to stop this as well. Uh, you start off with a, like a little snowflake and go into a snowball, uh, and it takes a long time to build up to a very, very huge uh, mountain moving along. Uh, this is a, these are, these are thousand-year wars, you know, and and so it, it takes a long time for information to to gradually get out there, bit by bit by bit, especially with the indoctrination we've had over the last few thousand years. So it, it takes time. The whole thing is not to panic. Be, be able to stand up and face the harsh reality. And once that happens, there's a peace that comes with it. You now you know. Now you know. You don't have to sit and live in terror or, or listen to the shortwave and, my God, they're going to pull the economy tomorrow. I better buy this and buy that and, and all the stuff that they're selling you. Don't, don't fall into that trap, right. you know. Um, there's a peace that comes with understanding. And if nothing else, you can leave this world uh, with, and you've broken through. You've overcome the world. That's what it always meant. Well, do you maintain a, a hope, maybe a belief, or a confidence that... Um that this thing is uh, defeatable? It's defeatable if, if people wanted it to be defeated. And, and here's, the, here's the problem with this. Most people will, will never stand up for injustice outside of themselves uh, for others. Uh, there are tremendous flaws in man, tremendous flaws in man where... And a good example is how easily he is to be trained to go off and kill anybody he's told to kill. And we don't even need good reasons for it. The average soldier in the Middle East knows nothing about politics or, or, or mm. far-reaching agendas. And he doesn't care you know, um, for the excitement. So there are tremendous flaws when we're so willing to go and kill each other. Um, until there's a drastic change within humanity itself, this will continue to its conclusion. Uh, we're out of time. I want to thank Alan Watt for joining us. The website is cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Great news that a DVD is soon to be uh, coming out. Is that correct? That's right. Well, we'll look forward to that. And Alan, always appreciate the time you spend with us. We don't take it for granted, but we sure do appreciate you being here. Yeah, I enjoy it too. Thanks. All right, and we'll see you again, I hope. Okay, doke. All right, bye-bye. Bye now.